Socialists, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we are honored we are doing our second interview with accounting thought leader, Joe Woodard. Hey, Ed, how's it going? It's, t- it's a tiring week, Ron. been a tiring week. I had a little travel. I've done like three webinars and recorded like eight podcasts, including four earlier today. So I'm like talked wow. out. So I'm going to sage- let you just run with this. Yeah. What, what did you put a uh, bunch of sage podcasts in the can? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. Even though they're short, that, uh, that's a lot of work. Yeah, no, it's talking to a lot of people. So, and one was an extended version that we're doing. So. Yeah. Oh, cool. I can't wait to listen to him. All right. Well, let me introduce Joe Woodard here before I bring him in. And because uh, he's got an incredible bio as an author, consultant, business coach, and national speaker, Joe has trained over 100,000 accounting and business professionals in areas of practice development, changing technology trends, strategic consulting, and how to maximize the use of accounting software in their practices. Uh, he's been named on Accounting Today's top 100 most influential people at least six times. And in 2008, he was recognized by CPA Practice Advisors, one of the top 40 up-and-coming thought leaders under the age of 40, which drives me crazy. Um, Joe is the CEO of Woodard Events, LLC, which includes education, coaching, resources, and a community for small business advisors and small business owners within the accounting industry. Welcome, Joe. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Welcome back, I should say. I, I only say thought leaders under the age of 40 drives me crazy because, you know, once, you, once you're over the age of 40, your innovation curve is dead. <laughs> you do know that, right? Yeah. <clears throat> well, if you're doing the math, I got that award about 12 years ago. So that kind of tells oh, okay. you current so I, and Okay, I don't feel so bad. Cut, barely made okay. okay, so that's your equivalent of the uh, high school uh, photo on the website. Okay. There you go. There you go. Gotcha. Well, listen, I, I, you have a great vision on your website, and I know that you worked on this at a place that uh, we both had the honor of attending, and I'll let you tell that story, but I just want to read your vision because I do think it's powerful. It's to transform small business through small business advisors, uh, and I just love that. How'd you come up with that? Well, I came up with that through a journey through the Disney Institute. And the Disney Institute said that your vision, not your vision statement, your vision is the intersection of three things, who you are, the higher principle you follow, and the change that you want to see in the world. So then they sent us through this exploration of those three things. And we would come back with something and it would be weak and it would be thin or it would be too wordy. And then they would send us back in until finally, what emerged was not what you just read. What emerged was about a 15-word version of that that I slowly pared down over the course of a couple of years to its essential elements. Um, and, and it always strikes me when I hear it read back to me how simple it sounds. 
to transform small business through small business advisor. Sound like something I should have been able to write in the back of a taxi cab uh, between appointments in New York City. But in truth, it was forged out of a multi-year process that is the fusion of my personal and business ambition. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? How our whys or our purpose, whatever you want to call it, uh, taps into that part of our brain that can't process language. So coming up with this is really difficult. It is. It is. Especially if you're going to treat it as a compass point. See, and that was one of the, the guidelines that would come back and they would say, oh, if you're going to dedicate your entire life to this, never arriving at it, but always marching toward this direction, are you going to be fulfilled? Are you going to have purpose? And then, oh, no. So let's go back and let's start writing again. And I think that's the most important thing. I think the biggest misunderstanding with vision is people think you can accomplish one or that you're supposed to accomplish one. Now, some visions have actually been accomplished, and in which case, those are Herculean moments in human history. But more times than not, or even you could say by its very design, a vision statement is supposed to be a magnetic north. Now, when I'm teaching this, I always say, you know, have you ever traveled to magnetic north? Is it, is it a destination, a place where you want to go hang out with your family on a summer vacation? No. But until the age of GPS, it was the most important single place on the planet because it was, it was that point by which everybody steered their, their journey. So I always test. Uh, say, for example, we're, we're an event company. We do a lot of training. If General Motors were to come to me tomorrow and say, we're doing a big gala for the brand new Corvette, and here's $300,000, throw the gala for us. You know how to throw a party. I would have to say no, because it has nothing to do with transforming small business through small business advisors. Now, if it's a middle-aged small business advisor, male in mid-age crisis, maybe it can transform them, but that's about the closest you're going to get to my vision. Not going to happen. Or maybe Batman. It could transform Batman. Put some weight on it. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's aspirational. Yeah. You'll, exactly. You'll, something so we always aspire to. It's either true to your vision or it's not. And one of my favorite teachers says uh, that opportunity does not equal obligation. And the only way to discern between opportunity and obligation is the vision. What Disney Institute course did you take? Do you remember? I took the one on branding. And at first I felt like it was a bait and switch because I thought they were going to help me create a logo um, <laughs> until, <laughs> until they taught me what branding actually is. And branding is a story, a story with integrity that is born out of the intersection of the higher principle you follow, the change you want to see in the world and who you are. And so that, so when it's, when it's none of those things, when it's not a story, when it's not a pervasive story, when it's not a story that is true to who you are as a person, that begins to show. People can actually spot it on the surface of that. They don't know why it lacks integrity or depth, but they instantly see that and it doesn't resonate. Sure, sure. Did, when you attended Disney Institute, was that, was that down in Florida? Yeah, I went down to Florida. Yeah, me too. I, I, I attended their customer loyalty program, the Disney way back in 97. And I tell people, and I, it's really true. It's, it's some of the best education I've ever had, literally. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it is really good stuff. So I wanted to ask you just some macro issues about the profession, but this also ties into what you've been talking about a lot. Uh, your theme about 
you talk about the rise of the machines and we've, we've had you on, we talked about the future of the professions book by Daniel and Richard Suskin and AI, deep learning, bots, all of that, the automation of the profession. But you talk about the answer to the rise of the machines is the rise of the advisor. That's correct. Or you could say the rise of the human. Um, Right, right. Exactly. Either way, uh, what I tend to take a very positive outlook on the rise of the machines. I don't tie in to the more Terminator kind of approach um, or even in the Alien series, uh, you know, where (laughs) where the human being becomes denigrated to somehow the service of the machine. Of course, there are a gazillion Star Trek episodes about this, this whole idea of, um, of, of we diminish, we diminish when the robots begin to overtake us in intelligence or capabilities. And, and the Star Trek saga of the, the next generation did a great job uh, juxtaposing data with the humans that with which with, with whom data interacted. He was smarter than they all are. He was stronger than they all were. He eventually even began to understand the emotions that they all felt, then feel the emotions that they all felt. But somehow he never did achieve certain things that, that, that his crewmates had. And I thought it was masterfully told, but it, there, it's also a parable for us that the machines are there to enhance us, okay, and the, what is the us that is enhanced look like? I think it's a more liberated us. I think it's an us that can focus more on the, the rather than the survival elements of economy, we can focus on the creative elements of economy more than on the, the grunt work of client relationships. We can focus on uh, the growth areas and the consultative areas of client relationships. So if the machines can take care the things that are lower in value, it liberates us. So I tend to think in the, in the optimistic view that the rise of the machines is going to usher in an age of creativity, extreme economic thrival. Uh, and if that's such a word, Jason Bloomer would say it is. And, um, and uh, a renaissance of art and creativity. Yeah. Yeah. We like to call that magic work rather than logic work. Yes. And, and uh, that's great. And you also talk a lot about relationship workers as part of the transformative advisor or the human advisor, this idea of, you know, we're relationship workers and to get really specific, how do you measure the efficacy of a relationship worker? Yeah. So relationships are measured in mutual benefit and, you know, are we greater somehow than the sum of our parts, right? Are two friends stronger than if they were by themselves? Are they two interdependent people, as Covey would say, that are interacting in some way that is a win-win, always win, um, and accomplishing something they couldn't do by themselves? Uh, relationships suffer. We're going to get to the business application of this in a minute when it's two, when it's not two independent people who are interacting with each other. So you have uh, a, a codependent relationship or you have someone who is always or pr- predominantly doing the giving. The other person is predominantly doing the taking that creates an enablement that allows them to live through life. And I would just prefer everybody to the, the seven habits of highly effective people for, for the study of that. But in a business relationship, it comes down to the increase in wealth. If 
if I am a relation, a successful relationship worker, I leave my client or I wouldn't say leave because I may be coming alongside her for the whole of a journey, right? But by interacting with my client, my client is wealthier than if I did not interact with them. But catch or caveat, that wealth may or may not be financial. Right. It could be infrastructural. It could be cultural. It could be a social. It, it, it could be uh, in terms of their ability to scale. It could be in the valuation of the company rather than the cash position of the company. Um, it could be a long-term trajectory toward wealth rather than an immediate return of wealth. However it's measured, as long as the client perceives it, then the client will pay for it. But not when they're not, what they're paying for is ultimately not an outcome. What they're paying for is ultimately the relationship. Right. I, I love that because, you know, we talked last week when we had George Gilder on about the idea of the, the customer doesn't care how much time we spend on something, what really matters. And we should make the customer do a timesheet because what one of the things we can do to enhance their wealth is increase the time they have to pursue what they want to do when they want to do it. And that's a form of wealth. that's not necessarily quantifiable, but it's massive. Yep. Can I tell a duck story? All right. So we got one minute, but go ahead. This is a one minute duck story. All right. So I went to the county fair and there was this guy, these made these wonderful, beautiful little handmade, handmade ducks. And he put them down in this little bat of water and they, they ducked and they bobbed and they did all, you know, it was just the cutest little thing. Wind him up, let him go. I'd never seen a little duck like that because he invented it. It was his design. It was differentiated. I also had an immediate need. We were going to a birthday party. For a small child, they needed the duck. Couldn't find anything like this anywhere in the world. So I asked how much, he said $20. I pulled out $40, said, give me two ducks. While the money's in my hand, he starts going through why the ducks are worth $20. And everything he describes is how much time it takes, how long the varnish has to set, how long he has to you dry the wood, how long it takes. And, and I mean, he's already made the sale. And right. he's still trying to resell me based on the effort it took. I could not care less if it took him five seconds to make the duck. I just wanted the duck. Right, right. What well, a well, great, great illustration of the labor theory of value and why it's wrong. Exactly. <laughs> why we focus on the wrong things. Well, Joe, this is great. I know Ed wants to pick up and ask you a bunch of questions. But folks, in the meantime, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Go out to iTunes and give us a rating. That helps uh, the currency of the show and helps us get guests like Joe. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. 
Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Our guest today on The Soul of Enterprise is Joe Woodard. Joe is what I like to call a recidivist guest. You're a recidivist, Joe. This is uh, your second offender. <laughs> and uh and what and what i wanted to talk to you about you've got me intrigued because before before we started uh, recording the show uh ron said you know joe has changed his mind on a couple of things since he's been on our show last and i went back and the la- you're on the show in december of 2016 so it's a little less than three years and Ron and I subsequently have done a show on changing our mind. And one of the things that we, we talked about in that show is that changing one's mind is not, does not happen overnight, right? If, if, if your mind is changed by me talking to you for five minutes, your mind isn't very strong in the first place, right? <laughs> You're very easily fallen under the influence of somebody. But I think enough time has elapsed that you have changed your mind on a couple of things. So I want to know, what, what is it that you've changed your mind on? Well, they're really two sides of the same coin. But when I was I was back on it in 2016, um, I said you should not bill for time, but you should track time because time is a good internal measurement of productivity of whether or not you're on track on budget with uh, with your work with the job and so forth. And I remember you were so kind. You said, "Well, we will agree to disagree," and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you, you actually didn't say anything beyond that. You didn't fight me on or anything like that. You just moved along. And then, um, but what's changed is I've ceased to see that as net value. Now, I'm not going to say that in certain reports, it might not be fun. Okay. It might not be an interesting little graph to place up how much time it took versus how much money. Or but here's the problem. At first, there's limited value in any graph that you would place up that way. But what you lose is the focus on what really, on measuring what really matters. So as I was tracking time in order to determine how much time it took for somebody to generate X amount of revenue or X amount of outcome, everything became time obsessed. So did I remember to start or stop the time clock? Did I start or stop it when I went to the bathroom? Do I burden it with time that is out of the office? If the person is sick and it takes a longer time in terms of duration on a project, how do we track that against the amount of actual time they worked the project? 
and and first the variables were many second they were often irrelevant to the outcome and third it took way too much time to track them which means they were a massive distraction and so i simply stopped doing that altogether and told my team get the job done get a jump get it done well and we're going to measure the quality of the outcome of what you've done and then you know was that the deliverable to the client do we over deliver under deliver or do we deliver right on track and often that could be determined by if they buck you on the price that you had you had quoted to them or not um, and then whenever I started teaching this to accountants the the most common um, the most common objection I would get is if I don't track time how do I know which clients are, are the troublesome clients? How do I know which clients I need to let go of so that I can make greater profits and I, and I can service more clients better? And I told them, and I can't remember if it was one of the two of you that said this or if it was somebody else I was listening to once, but I said, let them fire two clients per year. And they will tell you which clients, they will fire the two clients that they know are the, are the biggest problems. You don't even have to measure that. They, they live on the ground. They see it. Mm-hmm. So, so there you go. That's changed my mind. Number one. Okay. Well, let's let's just explore that for 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 another little bit. Maybe we can even push you for, further down the down the road on this. Uh, but be, but yes, you're you've 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 come into alignment with a, a lot of the thinking that that Ron and I have done o- over the years on this. And you're exactly right. We one of the exercises that we have have had people do in our classes is go through the, the, this, what is the cost of, of tracking time? What is the cost of the, the, the time and billing system of pushing these transactions through your system? And in every place we've done it, what does it run? Somewhere between five and 10% is, is where this comes out with. So we're like, oh, you want to increase profit by 5%? Get rid of your timesheets. <laughs> Pretty simple, <laughs> right? That would just, we'll just remove that right away. But the, the probably the even more important thing that you've discovered and and this is where we get into you know Peter Drucker logic you know Peter Drucker he w- and Ron and I are fine if you want to track your own individual time because it's of value to you to decide whether you're spending as mu- much time with your kids or whether you're doing by all means right if you want to do that but it does it matters not a lick to anybody else but you yeah. And I would right. say even for me, I would much rather measure still the outcomes. Does my right. daughter feel loved? Does my wife feel loved? And I'm not going to go back to my wife whenever she says, I really just don't feel loved and pull out a timesheet. And <laughs> not going first. First, it's not going to help. Second, it's probably going to hurt. And so, so I, you know, Um, So it comes down to, um, I've I've been putting a lot of emphasis lately on the value of attention. And then I've looked at what people have been saying when they say time and realizing they really mean attention. You know, I want more of your time, says a spouse. Okay. Uh, I've been sitting on the couch right next to you for the last four hours reading a book. You've had me here. You've had my time. No, I, what I want is your attention. Okay. And what the client wants is our attention. And sometimes attention can be as simple as I'm in their Slack channel or I'm in the Microsoft Teams or I'm, I, I could just shoot them an email or something and say, okay, we, we talked about these four things last week. How are they going? That, that takes 10, 15 seconds to do. And yet they have my attention. 
And while remaining real and while remaining personal, you can even program some of those things through solutions like HubSpot or Keep or whatever, as long as it doesn't become mechanical, right? To follow up with them and let them know that you're giving, you're, they're getting some of your attention, as long as it's, it's highly personalized. So, you know, you guys say, if somebody says, thank you for your time, you guys will re retort back, no, thank, no, say thank you for your knowledge. Um, I'm, I have a similar one. If somebody says, thank you for your time, I'll say, no, no, thank me for my attention. Because maybe at that moment, I didn't disseminate any knowledge. Maybe I was the receptor of their knowledge, but I gave them my attention. And I've got a funny little antidote for this, too. I was, I was presenting on this in New York City. And, and anything could happen in New York City. I, I love teaching in New York. Uh, because, and so I said, uh, your time doesn't matter. And I just, I've dropped that out in Ohio. I've dropped that out in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley, if anybody does get offended, they're guilty because they shouldn't get offended. And then, um, um, you know, and then over here in Georgia, they're just like, you know, whatever. This lady in New York was ready to come out of her chair. And I could see that she was ready to come out of her chair, <clears throat> kind of the how dare you thing. You know, I'm not valuable. And, and so when she started, she raised her hand. She was actually halfway. She had, she had one butt cheek out of the chair. And I said, I said, um, I said, ma'am, I, I understand that you're having a strong reaction to this. Let me tell you what I'm not saying. I am not saying you are not valuable. You are valuable. I'm saying that the phrase, your time is valuable, is an inane phrase. It's like saying your square cube is really round. It, it, it makes no sense because you can't have time. You've, time is a force of nature. It's like saying I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to control my gravity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manipulate my gravity. Okay, so never your gravity. It's a force of nature that you happen to be leveraging in order to make your muscles get bigger. But Einstein even said that time and space are the same thing. So now you're what? To say that I'm going to manage time means I'm going to manage all of time and space or that I can own all of time and space. So when we get to the right question, only then can we get to the right answer. And what is extremely valuable is your attention. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I think I, I either did a blog post or I envisioned myself doing a blog post a number of years ago on, on, on this, the, the notion of all of the different metaphors that we use with time. Save yep. time, make time, right? Invest time. And they're all really crazy. To, mm -hmm. when, when you actually try to try to parse them out because my, the phrase that I use that you, you said eloquently as well is time is a constraint. It's not a resource, right? Because it's, it, it, it just is. It's a, it's a, and as Gilder put it, it's a measuring stick. And the measuring stick doesn't change. The foot doesn't change. The yard doesn't change. It's, it's the measuring stick. And it's the constraint under which we all live, right? So it's not anything that can be created. We can't create time. We can't make time, right? Uh, but, and, and you're right. I like that. I like that notion of, of attention as well. That's a, that's a, that's a really good way to phrase it. So I'm going to, I'm going to steal that and incorporate that in, into my pat. Answer. And I would add to it that we can't manage time either. So, uh, so that begs the question, what can we manage? We can only manage a task. Yep. Then in the management of tasks, the first line of business is prioritization. And as a consultant, we prioritize those things that will increase our clients' wealth. Yep. 
Yeah, manage the work, not the people, as the, the folks from Rose says. But we're up against our next break. want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is, of course, The Soul of Enterprise, where you can go out and get show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our archive page, which is where you can find all previous 250-some-odd shows, including episode 119, which is our first interview with accounting thought leader Joe Woodard. But right now, a word from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with accounting thought leader, Joe Woodard. And I, I really enjoyed that discussion, Joe, with Ed about uh, the measurement aspect and the whole time is money uh, viewpoint. You know, Oscar Wilde famously said, time isn't money. Time is a waste of money. <laughs> I've always, uh, always liked that line. But on the measurements, sticking with that, um, I heard you on a recent podcast and you were discussing Apple as an example and specifically the Apple iPhone. You said, take a look at what Apple measures with respect to the iPhone. It's certainly not how long it takes them to produce it. It's other things. And what, explain that and then what lessons, what lessons for accounting firms, bookkeeping firms that holds. Yeah, well, so, so when Apple is measuring the iPhone, they're measuring the quality of the product as it is perceived by the consumer. Um, and not as not as it is perceived by the Apple engineers, but as it is perceived by the consumer. Uh, the consumers thought one of the old Apple Macintoshes looked like Betty Jetson's microwave oven, right? That, so that was the perception. I think we all know which one we're talking about. Um, and so that perception meant that it had a very short life. So when you're when you're measuring what matters, you're measuring a product. 
if you're under the delusion that time is your product, then that is what you will hyper measure. So one of the, one of the, in the, in the interview with accounting today, I, I pointed to one of the staples of all professional service measurements and metrics. It's billable versus non-billable time. And from that, you get a realization rate. Okay, well, that's, that's irrelevant. That's an irrelevant measurement when it comes to quality because you're not even measuring the product. And, and then that starts to kind of, like I talked about in the first segment, you start to hyper dissect that. Well, how can we get your ratio of billable to non-billable time? How can we get that better? Well, then, are, you know, then we start asking the really, really inane questions. Are you turning off the time when you go to the bathroom? Should you turn off the time when you go to the bathroom? What's the ethical implications of that if it doesn't cross a five-minute mark? Um, if you do go to the bathroom too much because maybe you ate too much Mexican for lunch, should you work 15 more minutes during the day in order to count, account for all the bathroom breaks in order to get the realized bill rate up? How do you factor in PTO? How do you factor in vacations? What do you do whenever there's a write down? Is that a realization of billable versus non-billable? And the whole thing will make your head explode or make you throw up or maybe at the same time while the client is out there, think about now what we're really trying to do. And this gets us back to the transformative advisor. Joe's lawnmower shop is out there trying their best to make lawnmowers and survive. They've got some sort of a... Sorry. They've got some sort of a problem that they're trying to solve. They're trying to get the lending that they need. They're trying to get the... Um, they're trying to get the supply chain for their parts worked out. They've got real problems that they need an advisor to work with them on. And we've got our heads down focusing on how much time last month we spent preparing that person's financial statements. Wouldn't the time be better spent measuring the financial statements or maybe, maybe making a cash flow prediction because if we could have done that, they wouldn't be in a cash crisis right now trying to scramble with the bank in order to make the next payroll. So if we can turn, lift our heads up, get our heads out of the timesheets and focus on the client pain, solve the client pain, price it right, and I know that the pricing right is key, then we're all taken care of in, in the equation. Yeah, I love that. I love that analogy. It's it's really spot on. It really makes people think about what about the customer? The customer is ignored with hourly billing and the timesheet measurement. And on that, I mean, I know you've been at Scaling New Heights, your 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 flagship conference every year. You've had me in. You've had Kirk Bowman in. You've had Mark Wickersham in. There's been a lot of emphasis on value pricing. Where do you see that movement? Is it diffusing? I think the value pricing is become tired as a concept only because it's been taught so much, but it's, it's tired while being grossly under adopted. And, and that's a tragedy. Um, if it is under adopted because people don't know how to sell. So the, the books I'm reading right now are books on how to sell, uh, books on how to negotiate. Uh, I'm reading a book called Getting to Yes. I'm, I'm reading a book called Never Split the Difference. Uh, I'm going back and visiting a lot of the, the, the Covey principles uh, where he, where we heard win-win so many times it becomes trite, but Covey actually breaks it down and dissects what a win-win looks like. Um, and then the, one of the other books that I'm reading by Patrick Lencioni, or I've read and I'm rereading, um, is 
uh, the, the book called Getting Naked, because in that book, that book should really be called uh, The Relationship Worker. First, it's easier to Google without getting in trouble. And, se- and second, <laughs> it, it'd be more appropriately titled. Because in that book, he, in a narrative way, as Patrick Lencioni's want to do, he, he talks, he, he describes out in a storyline what a relationship worker really looks like. And what amazes me every time is how little time he actually spends with the client. He'll, but he's physically present. He'll walk in, he'll look at something like a piece of artwork or a marketing messaging, or he'll look at something that's happening in a business plan. He will call it the problem. He'll say, you've got to change this. He won't even wait for much of a response and then he'll walk out the door, almost like a fractional COO would do. This is not a matter of a question. This is a matter of a dictate, change this, or it's going to go bad and out the door he goes. And he's built such trust that they will listen to what he has to say. They'll do it. And 99 times out of a hundred, it's going to generate more wealth for them. But he's doing all of that in a relationship, not driven by how much time he's there. Right. Not in the fear of what they're going to think and all of the other psychologies that come into play and definitely with his head up. Uh, That book never split the difference. Is that the former FBI negotiator? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but it, that, it, it works because sometimes when you're trying to value price, you feel like that. Isn't that, fa- that's a great book because there's so much counterintuitive advice in that book. And, and I just, I just love it. And I love some of the stories too, of the hostage situations, but uh, on that, okay. So value pricing is, uh, you know, tired, but under, under uh, adopted, as you say, what about timesheets? What about, are people still clinging to their timesheets like a security blanket? Um, I, unfortunately, I think the rank and file are. Um, now, some of the folks that come to Scaling New Heights have begun to back off of those. Um, but what I'm finding is that if they do hold on to them, they hold on to them for this set, like these five kinds of engagements. We're going to track time, bill by the time. These over here, we're not. Some of the ones I'm hearing that they focus on tax returns, no, not so much. Bookkeeping, no, not so much. But if they get a brand new client and they're trying to do client file cleanup, then that's Pandora's box. And anytime they feel like they're opening up Pandora's box, they run to the safety of a timesheet to protect themselves. And, you know, I can't blame them there. They need some form of protection. Um, We don't know what's in Pandora's box. Right. And it's, it's impossible to spec that or very difficult to spec that. But that is actually my response. Create a flat fee specifications engagement. Open the box. Don't change anything. Don't fix anything. Just write down what's in the box and what it's going to take to fix it. Now you've got a project. Now you can plan against it. Now you can price it. Right. You can put it into phases. I've, I've really uh, gotten more bold on this, but you know, we talk a lot about risk and profits come from risk. That's their only origin. So when I see an engagement that's got risk or uncertainty in it, I want to run towards it because that's where you can make real profit. We can't make profit by reverting back to the hourly, the nice safe hourly rate. Uh, when there's uncertainty and risk, we have to run towards the risk. Yeah. Now, and I know that's really the difficult. Client's going to run out of money or run out of value perception. And they're going to try to shut it down or they're going to try to talk you down. And so the whole thing ends up having the same little trap. It's just, you know, at what point do you fall through the trap hole? I, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, embrace the danger, run into the risk. And with that can come tremendous reward. 
maybe sometimes you'll spend a little more time than you planned, but, but you know, what does that really mean? Um, it, it, and you learn a lot in the process. You, you, you've earned the trust of the client in the process. And then uh, the only other thing I would say is when you can form a specification, be extremely specific about the specification and the, the slightest deviation, pull out a change order because, right. because it's not about how much time, and this is where time can become another form of a trap. Um, it's only going to take me about 10 minutes to do this different thing that they're asking for. Oh, oh, so I'm just going to throw it in. All right. That's the other side of the time trap. Little time, therefore irrelevant. No, big, rele hugely relevant psychologically, as well as sometimes in terms of value. So I, you know, pop the change order out. That's going to be $50. It's going to be a hundred dollars. It's going to be $300, whatever the value of that thing they're wanting you to do for the 10 minutes may be. And then it will also set the guidelines for the relationship that you go off spec, you pay more money. Right. And, and with all, whether you phase it or do that tight scoping and use change requests diligently, you're managing the client expectations. You're doing that constant communication and that's what's important no matter what, because we fall into all sorts of traps through just lousy communications with, with the customer. I get, I get asked all the time, how do I get started? And I've got an example of this. It's very fresh. I've got a client, they're a software developer. I'm doing some consulting with them on a product launch. And, um, neither of us really knows what the relationship's going to, to be like. They just know they need some guidance and they want me to be uh, there. They, they want me to be in the room, part of the team. So on the call, without any kind of specifications work, it was too, too ethereal for that. I said, um, $1,500 a month. And then they said, okay, great. What does that get me? Said, it gets you me. Put me in your Slack. Uh, you know, throw me on, send an invite. And I'll jump into some, how many, I'll jump into a meeting. How many meetings? See, they're trying to, they're trying to, mm -hmm. and I'm, no, yeah. uh, five meetings, 10 meetings, 15 meetings. Whenever you need me to be in a meeting, throw me into a meeting. Shoot me something in a Slack, I'll, I'll answer it. Yeah, ask me to take a look at something, I'll review it. But, and this is the key but, at some point in the future, you're going to feel like you're getting too much of me for $1,500 a month. And when that time comes, why don't you change the price? Right. At um, their discretion. At their discretion. Now, if they wait too long, I might hint Right. But that's the nature of a relationship. A relationship is two interdependent people with their own sets of very well-established boundaries, defining the nature and the terms of the relationship. If I ever feel like they're either by distraction or by intention taking advantage of me, I'm going to come back and say, yeah, well, I think we're at 3000 a month now, 4000 a month now, whatever it is. But at that point, I have a chance to look back at some of the successes. You know, as you can see, I, I accomplished this with you or headed off the past that you, you know, I saved, saved you a big uh, run into a brick wall over here um, and justify the increase in price. All right. You're back to the quality of the outcome for them exactly. rather than, the, yeah. yeah. I, can, yeah. I can actually win some, win some outcomes and, and, and establish my value so that we can then price something. We get out of that chicken and egg problem. Right. I love uh, Ed. Ed calls that uh, selling your brain. And that's what you're doing there. You're not selling a pair of hands or a series of tasks or a scope of work. You're selling access to your brain, whatever they need. Yep. <laughs> and that scares the heck, it scares the heck out, a lot, uh, out of a lot of professionals because they think it's so open-ended because they're stuck in that time mentality. But 
it's just amazing how much value you can add in a short period of time sometimes. Well, and I'll tell you one thing too that makes it, uh, and this is why it should be appropriately called relationship work. I actually like hanging around with these people. Sure. So, you know, when they call, I don't wince. I don't think, oh my gosh, I got, I've got to deal with them. I'm delighted. I can't wait to get into a meeting. They have an amazing culture. And so I'm having fun. They're paying for me to have fun. I don't see a downside. Yeah, no, that's that, that, those are the best relationships because nobody's a supplicant there. You're, yeah. you're both equals, your colleagues at that point. Uh, I heard you once say, Joe, that you recommend or you see the day where we could get to where the compliance work is just done as part of the advisory services being, uh, you know, engaged. You mean automated? Yeah. 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 I, I realize that relies on automation, but do you kind of hold that view that the compliance work should just be kind of thrown in as long as they're buying oh, yes. the advisory work? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I was asked on a podcast once if I could give any advice, any single piece of advice to the entire accounting industry, this was a global podcast, what would it be? And I said, stop selling accounting services. And boy, did I get reamed on social about that. But because I did not say though, stop doing accounting services. What I said is stop selling it because to sell it means that you immediately attach yourself to a price anchor, a price anchor that is constantly getting lower and lower and lower as more and more of these scaled bookkeeping models and monetized bookkeeping models pile on. So instead, what I say is sell results, sell outcomes, sell increases in wealth, all, all that stuff we call advisory work, but advisory is another word that's gotten really, really tired. Right. So, so that's why I call it transformative advisory instead of trusted advisor. Trusted, trusted can be passive. We all trust our CPA. We trust that they're not going to go you know, put our, our tax returns out on Twitter. All right, that's a passive trust. An active trust means that if you give me advice, I'm going to change something in my life as a, as a result of what you have said. That's active trust. And an active trusted advisor, if they're providing good advice, transforms you, transforms your business. And then we have to define what transformation is. I am a better human being. I am a stronger business. And then you can start drilling down on all the aspects of that. So if we're, if we're focused on all of that, if I say, my job here is to make your business stronger, better, uh, more profitable, more scalable, more valuable and ready for succession, which everybody should start thinking about from day one, um, and to come alongside you for the whole of the journey, a phrase I use a lot, which is summarized in the Greek word paraclete. If that's my job, then um, everything else becomes a means to that greater end. Having accurate, timely financial information, that's a means, not an end. It's a means. Yeah, yeah. that's and excellent. Yeah. So whenever they say, well, I can go over here and I can get it for X price. So you're not going to beat my price. My price is free. I don't charge for bookkeeping as long as you are right. my advisory client. But for yeah. advisory, we start at $4,000 a month. I love it. I, I, I'm sure Ed's going to ask you about that Greek word that you threw out. And he's also going to ask you about the second thing you changed your mind on. But unfortunately, we're actually over time for our break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can send us an email to asktsoe at bearsage.com. Check out the Patreon site at patreon slash tsoe. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. His vision is to transform small businesses through small business advisors. And we have with us on our last segment of the show today, Joe Woodard. And Joe, uh, I've, I had the opportunity to ask you about the first thing that you changed your mind on. And then we went a little bit long on that. So what's the second thing that you've changed your mind on? Well, it's the other side of the same coin. I was living in hypocrisy. I was saying that, you know, what, what it doesn't matter. I don't sell hours to my client. I sell results. I sell outcomes. But then I was paying my employees by the hour. And I thought that I had myself inoculated from that because everybody was salaried. I had no hourly employees. So I was telling myself, well, I'm not really paying by the hour. I'm salaried. I've salaried everybody until I got the 500th. Is it okay if I leave an hour early today? I've got to go to the shopping center. Can I, can I take a long lunch? And it, I realized that the mindset of my employees is that they're trading hours for dollars. I took that entire mindset away by saying, I don't care. If you want to go on a 10-hour shopping spree five days a week, I don't care. All right. What I care about are two things. Get the job done and be here for your teammates. As long as you guys have that worked out, you can bring to me any issues and escalate them to me as necessary. I'm good to go. And part of that, of course, is at least somebody has to be here to pick up the phone or respond to the chat bot. But cover the company, make sure the customers are happy, and then do whatever you want to with your time because time is not relevant to the outcome. It is simply the air we breathe. Yeah, another another thing that's way underrepresented in, in the in the world today, and that is the the, the row movement, the results only work environment. And mm-hmm. mentioned that earlier. Jody Thompson's been on the show, and and her great phrase: "Manage the work, not the people." What's got to get done? The work has got to get done. 
that's what's got to get done. So we manage the work. And the, you know, I don't care if you follow what's left of the Grateful Dead around. As long as the work gets done, we're, 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 we're good with it. But, right. you know, I've seen some I've seen some incredible things happen and that we just put this in about a, a month and a half ago. And already I'm seeing that uh, a, a mom in our company was at her kid's school play at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's an elementary play thing. Um, and then uh, I saw that her kid was in our conference room uh, just doing his homework, which I thought was kind of cool, too. At some point she went and picked him up. She didn't have she didn't have to ask me, can I go pick him up? She knew the conference room was available. She stuck her kid in there. It was an available space. She didn't have to ask me. But I saw that same mom on Saturday working to make sure that all of her tasks got done. So as long as you trust your people to get the tasks done and as long as you measure the outcomes. So I've started sounding like a broken record. If people come to me anymore and they say, can I have so-and-so off? I don't know. Where are you at on your tasks? And sometimes they'll kind of, uh, heads down and they'll realize they can't give themselves that day off. But that's their choice. But I never say yes. I never say no. I always return that with a question. Are you on track with your task? Are you going to hit your deadlines? Where are you at for this milestone? Are you going to slow your team members down? Do we have somebody answering the phones? Is somebody managing the cases? How backlogged is our caseload? If Depending on the answers to that, and I don't even want you to give me those answers. I want you to go look and I want you to make a grown-up decision as to whether or not you can take a two-hour lunch. Go. Yep. Yep. Great stuff. So, Joe, uh, Ron, Ron was asking about value pricing, and we've only got about 90 seconds left, but I, I wanted to, to give get your thoughts on how, how do you see what we're calling value pricing 2.0, uh, that, and that is, of course, subscription-based pricing. And, and the mantra that we've been offering for this is instead of what we talked about for years, which was price the customer, not the work, we're saying price the portfolio not even the customer. Yeah, when that's kind of what I did with this client where I said $1,500 a month, right? Um, and and so, so before I had even really absorbed this whole idea of subscription-based uh, pricing, I just instinctively knew I had a strong relationship with the client. They trusted me. They just wanted me on the team. We set a price per month. There we go. I did the same thing with another client. I put $3,000 a month because the value prop was more established coming in the front door, right? So these things may go up, they may go down. But I, I think it's I think it is the future of value pricing Be, because of the fact that we can get started. We can set a term. Let's reevaluate in four months. All right, anybody could do anything for four months. And then when we reevaluate, we have a track record. How much value do we generate? What is the trajectory for future value we're going to add? Where do we want to set the price for the next term? It's a great that's a great way to do it. Yeah, no, it really, really is. And we've, we've spent a lot of time <laughs> there's spent that metaphor again, spent a lot of time. <laughs> Wasted a lot, <laughs> given of, a lot of attention. <laughs> we've given a lot of attention. Uh, thank you to, to, to this notion. And, and, and yeah, we're, we're, we're on the same page here with regard to this. The, the future of this is, is more subscription across the board. All right, Ron. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for being a great guest again, and we'll lo- love to have you back. And you know, maybe we'll put a cadence of three years. It'd be a cyclical thing, or you know, a bit like a physical count inventory or something. I don't know. We'll make that all work. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Well, next week, Ed, we're going to lawyer up with three Australian lawyers: John Chisholm, Matthew Burgess, and David Wells. All happen to be Verisage fellows, by the way. And we're going to be discussing what's going on in the legal marketplace down under, and also our Verisage down under symposium. We'll talk a, a little bit about that and what what events are planned and the agenda. So I'm really looking forward to it. 
Wow, I can't wait. That's going to be a great conversation. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, check out the full show notes. We'll post our interview with Joe at thesoulofenterprise.com. Also, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for uh, coming on back on again, Joe. And thanks for listening, folks. And have a great weekend.